You're listening to The Bride Who Dances by Ian Ashby, part of our A City on a Hill series. For more audio content and resources, please visit newfrontierschurch.com. We um, are currently in a series of messages we just started uh, about, we're looking at different metaphors for the church to see how the church can really shine, how it could be a city on a hill, as Jesus said. And uh, so we're looking at these different metaphors. And last week I looked at a particular metaphor in the Bible where the church is described as the bride of Christ. And if you were here, uh, we traced the imagery back to the Old Testament uh, where God is revealed as a faithful, loving husband. Uh, But then we saw from the book of Hosea that his people, Israel, proved to be an unfaithful bride. And Hosea's own marriage to a serial adulteress was like a living parable of God's relationship with his people. Uh, Even to the point that when Hosea's wife left him and it seems um, got enslaved in some form of prostitution, that Hosea gave everything he had to buy her back, to, to redeem her. And of course, ultimately, that's what God has done for us, isn't it? That he came to rescue us. He came as a man, Jesus, who gave everything. He gave his own life in order to redeem us from our slavery and to sin so that we could be his. And so as we come to the New Testament, we find the church there is called the Bride of Christ. Uh, We've been forgiven, we've been redeemed, now we're joined to him, we've been made one with him, and one day we will physically be with him in a new heavens and new earth. And uh, that's what we see at the end of the Bible. The Apostle John, and in, in this revelation he has of the end, in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, uh, coming down out of heaven from God. Talking there about the church. He says that she was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's where we finished last week. Now, this week, I want us to see how, we're going to continue on that same metaphor, right? I want us to see how that should impact our relationships with one another. That as Christians, how we relate to one another should reveal something of what God is like and should ultimately point people to Jesus. Uh, Because actually, like Hosea, our lives and relationships are like living parables. They tell a story uh, to the people around us. Um, Now, that's particularly true in Christian marriage, which is what I want to focus on mostly today. But it's actually true of all of our relationships, how we all relate to one another, so please don't switch off if you're not married or you don't intend on getting married, okay, because this is for you as well, and hopefully you'll see that as we go through this uh, together. But let me start by just showing you a short video about marriage. It's based on what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, where he makes a very clear connection between husbands and wives and about the church being the bride of Christ. So we're going to watch this video, um, and it's uh, by uh, a young, uh, one of our foremost young theologians in New Frontiers called Andrew Wilson. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother 
and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Symbols, shadows, parables. Sometimes this is about that. Flowers are about love. Signatures are about promises. Fireworks are about celebrations. Poppies are about war. And marriage is about the Christian gospel. This mystery is profound, says Paul, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the wedding begins with the groom waiting at the front. He has pursued his bride and won her, and now he just has to wait. And when she eventually comes in, the whole room stands and stares at her beauty, her immaculate dress, pure and white and spotless. She gets presented to him and they declare that they have no other partners. They hold hands, they make promises to have and to hold for better, for worse, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. They exchange rings, signs of the covenant promises they have just made. They sign their names and make their vows legal. Then, as the ceremony concludes, they walk back out again, united as one. Everything he has is hers, and everything she has is his. Everybody celebrates with a meal. Later, they will express their physical union and share all of their possessions. She even takes on his name. Two have become one. And all this is about that. Jesus has made his people ready. His death for our sins has made us beautiful, pure, white, and spotless. We are given to him and to nobody else. We make promises to each other. Never will I leave you or abandon you, says Jesus, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And we reply to him, I will forsake all other gods as long as we both shall live. There is an exchange of gifts. God gives us his spirit. There is a legal declaration. God says we are righteous in his sight. And we walk on, united as one. Everything he has, his love, his power, his goodness, becomes ours. And everything we have, our sin, our shame, our past, becomes his. Everybody celebrates with a meal, bread and wine. We express our physical union through baptism in water. We give him access to all our possessions. We even take on his name and his identity. We become Christians. Two have become one. This is about that. Let's just read that, um, that passage of scripture there that was quoted. Uh, I want to read it from uh, verse 25 of Ephesians 5, where it really talks about this parallel with Christ and the church. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one, one flesh. This is a profound mystery, says Paul, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And Lord, I just pray as we, as we consider this together in our remaining time that you, uh, Lord, would really speak to our hearts, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide us into truth, into a better understanding of our relationship with you and with one another, Lord, that our lives might be ever to your glory. Amen. So marriage is meant to be a beautiful parable pointing to a greater reality. And before I go any further, let me just say that um, you are not missing out if you are not married, okay? Or if you don't get married. Because remember, this is about that, okay? And marriage, therefore, is not the destination. It's not the goal. Because, in fact, the Bible says there won't be any marrying in heaven. Marriage is like a signpost pointing us to our eternal union with Christ. That's the destination, and that's where we're all heading, okay, if you believe in Jesus today. Um, now, to get a fuller picture of that, we need to go back to the beginning, because this oneness that Paul quotes Genesis, you know, where the two become one flesh, this oneness that he speaks about um, exists within the Godhead, between, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's where, actually where all of this starts. So we have to start with God, okay? Uh, that's where everything starts, right? So let's go back to the beginning. In the beginning, in the beginning, there was God, okay? He is one God, but who exists in a community of three persons, and it's a community of love, a loving community, because God is love. That's what the Scriptures tell us. That is His very essence. And He couldn't be love unless there was someone to love. Um, and love, therefore, has always existed within the Godhead. Jesus made that clear in John 17, 24. He says, he, that's where He prays to the Father, and He says to His Father, You loved me before the creation of the world. Before anything else came into being, there was this relationship of love that existed within the Trinity. Um, and Jesus talked about uh, how the Spirit lives to glorify Him, how He, the Son, glorifies the Father, and how the Father glorifies the Son. We see this amazing life within the Trinity, characterized by this mutual, self-giving love. And a number of theologians have likened that to a dance. Listen to Tim Keller drawing upon the writings of C.S. Lewis. He says, Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. And this creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. In fact, the early leaders of the Greek church had a word for this, perichoresis. He says, notice our word choreography within it. It means literally to dance or to flow around. Now, what a beautiful description that is, isn't it, of what God is like. And so, when God created the universe, it was like this joyful, 
pulsating dance of love just exploded and overflowed into the creation of the world. So all creation got in on the dance with mankind at the very pinnacle because we were created, the Bible says, in God's likeness. We read that in Genesis 1, verse 26. It says here, Then God said, Let us, notice the plural there, this community, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So we were made in God's image. And remember, God exists as three co-equal and yet distinct persons. Each, in fact, has a different role. They are three, and yet they are one, one God. That's part of the mystery of God. And so in a similar fashion, we have been created male and female, right? And that's to reflect that, so that men and women are, are, are co-equal, just as God is co-equal. And yet we're distinct from one another. We've been created male and female. And so it would seem to suggest that, like God, we have different roles in our maleness and femaleness, right? It's like two complementary halves of a whole are partnering together. The two go together like dance partners, right? They partner together as one, just as God is one, which is actually a theme that we see running throughout the creation account. Everything that God created seemed to be in complementary pairs that go together. There was a new pair on every day of creation. So we find that he created night and day. Then he created land and sea. He created the sun and the moon. He created the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. He created wild animals and livestock animals. And so each half kind of complemented the other. Each time God said, it is good because it reflected something of his glory. So when he came to create mankind, it says he created them male and female. And this time God said, it is very good. There's something about our maleness and femaleness that uniquely reflects God's image when they complement one another, when they are together. And so surely the whole point of this then is not to emphasize our equality nor our differences, but our oneness, right? It's male and female together who reflect God's image and His glory in a way that man on his own or woman on her own are unable to do, right? Isn't that the point, that we need each other, that we're supposed to partner together as one? And one of the primary ways that we see that being outworked is in marriage, which is what we see instituted in Genesis chapter 2. 2 verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one, one flesh. In marriage we become one just as God is one, which means our oneness should be characterized by mutual self-giving love. 
And that's really what Paul is talking about there in Ephesians 5, how husbands and wives are to give themselves to one another in love. Both are to serve the other. Both are taking their cue from Christ himself who came to serve us and gave himself for us. But the way that husbands and wives do that looks different because male and female are different. So when Paul says here in verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that's a specific uh, responsibility is giving to the husbands there and seems to be implying that they should be taking the initiative in this, in loving their wives, because that's what Christ did for us. He played the lead role. He took the initiative in coming and showing his love for us. And how did he do that? By laying down his life for us. And so Paul is saying, husbands, love your wives in the same way, right? Both are called to give themselves uh, in serving one another. Both are taking their cue from Christ in that. But what this is telling us is that husbands are called to lead the way in serving. So just to give you an example from my own marriage, if Emma and I get into an argument, um, which never happens, um, yeah, you know better than that. Um, if we get into an argument, I feel responsible for restoring the harmony. I feel like God's tapping me on the shoulder, you know, to take responsibility. I realize it takes two to have an argument, right? And however that argument may have started, which usually is over something, you know, trivial, um, I ha there's always something I need to apologize for in that. All right, so I feel um, that I want to take the responsibility. I want to try and lead the way by asking for forgiveness and saying, I'm sorry, um, I was wrong in the way I responded, and so on. Right? I feel the responsibility to, um, to keep the harmony and the well-being in our household, you know, to protect uh, our family. Now, my leading in love does not mean me telling my wife what to do. Right? That wouldn't go well, right? because we are co-equals. We are partners. She is my best friend. Right? Neither does it define my role. Paul does not try and define the roles of husbands and wives within marriage. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us that husbands should be the one taking care of the money and wives uh, should be at home taking care of the kids. Right? In fact, in Bible times, as in much of the world today, you find husbands and wives needing to work together to provide for the family. That's certainly true in agricultural societies, like in Nepal, which is what we uh, see there. And so they, they, you know, they team together. They partner together. That's why we need to be very careful about stereotyping roles. Husbands and wives bring different strengths and different gifts to the marriage to complement one another and partner together. It's why every marriage looks different. But the important thing here, right, the important thing is our attitude in serving the other, okay? With husbands leading the way so that we might be one, just as God is one, just like we and Christ are one. It's us joining in the dance, which is why marriage should look like a dance as well. And I was just contemplating that, thinking about um, this analogy of marriage being like a dance, and I got an email from Ray Forsey saying that 
actually, God has been speaking to her about that very thing. So I thought, that can't be a coincidence, can it? So let's have Ray come and just share what God was saying to her about that. Let's welcome Ray, shall we? Good morning. So about 10 days ago, I was having a bit of a retreat, and I felt very prompted to watch some scenes from dance movies. Now, before you judge me, that's how God will speak to me sometimes. So I was watching Take the Lead, which is a story about Pierre Dulaine, based on a true story, who is a ballroom dancing teacher who supervises delinquent youths in their detention every day. And then that led me on to Dirty Dancing, you know, the one, I'm having the time of my life, and I never felt this way before. You know the one I mean? Yeah, well, that one. So as I watched them, I just found myself deeply moved, and just God was showing me that that's the way he wants us to be in step with him as the bride of Christ. There's like a oneness and dancing to his rhythm, and there's an intimacy to it. Well, my ears pricked up later on that day when Gareth got back from skiing. I had a rolled ankle, so that's why I wasn't out there. And he tells me that Ian's planning on using dance as a metaphor for his preach today. And I was like, gee, I've been thinking about that all day today. So the next day, I was praying for Ian and this message today. And I was re-watching those dance scenes. And I really felt God begin to speak to me about marriage and marriages in the church in particular. And... In Take the Lead, Pierre Dulaine uses ballroom dancing to teach his students how to treat each other. And the very first thing he teaches the guys is it takes strength and skill to lead and not to dominate your partner. And then there's this great sort of scene where Larette and Rock, who are arch enemies, have to dance together. And he's going to make them figure it out. And as they start to dance, Lorette kind of steps right in and kind of takes him across the floor. And Dulaine says, no, no, no. The man has to take the lead in the dance. And she goes, yeah, but if I let him lead, what does that mean? Does he now think he's going to be the boss of me? And as only Antonia Banderas can do, because he's the one playing the part, he goes, no, no, no. <laughs> he says, the man proposes the step. And the woman chooses to accept by following. And it takes just as much strength to follow as it does to lead. Well, that is really obvious when you come to dirty dancing and having the time of your life. Because that dance, when it starts off, is actually pretty romantic and steamy. It's pretty like, you know, slow. And then the music changes and <laughs> off they go. They're kind of putting each other on display. And what you have to know is, before there are any dance moves, there has to be intimacy and there has to be love. That's what that's like in life. And when two people are dancing, like they are, it's actually really, really hard to see who's taking the lead because they are so in step with one another. There's like this synchronicity that they have together. And then there's one bit in the dance, if you've seen it, you all know it, where Johnny runs and he leaps off the stage and he's doing his thing he's like showing off all of his moves and baby is she like standing there like gee what about me no way she's there flicking her dress and her head's back and she's laughing and she's rejoicing in the fact that he's having his moment and then there's this fantastic scene where 
he comes back and their eyes meet. And he goes to her, are you ready? And she nods back. And she runs with all of her strength and her flexibility. And he, you know that famous lift? Where he uses all of his strength to put her on display. And now it's not about him. Now it's all about her and her moment. And I found myself weeping and asking God that our men would be trustworthy and that they would use their strength to put their wives on display. Because you know, when that happens, when a couple can dance like that together, all eyes are on them. There's just something that draws you in. It's contagious. And before you know it, feet are tapping, hands are clicking, everybody's swaying to the beat, and then everybody's on the dance floor. And I just felt God say, for us as a church, it's really time to learn to dance. Amen. Thank you. Uh, Emma and I tried ballroom, ballroom dancing once. And uh, actually, it makes me want to try again. Because uh, you really have to work at it. You know, it does take practice. Because you know, when you start out, you're out of step with each other. It can be awkward. And then there's me, you know, stepping on her toes. And, you know, you can hurt the other person. And um, so it does take uh, practice. Um, and it's the same in marriage. You have to learn to work together uh, in marriage. And as Ray said, good dancing partners perfectly complement one another. They, they move together as one. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. But sadly, in today's world, that kind of harmony does not generally characterize relationships uh, in the world today. Instead, we see conflict, don't we, all around us. We see conflict in marriage. We see conflict between the sexes. We see conflict uh, throughout mankind. What God said was very good has become very bad. And of course, that all started in Genesis 3 where we read about the fall of mankind. And instead of uh, the man and woman revolving around God and around one another, they wanted to just revolve around themselves. Everything revolved around them. They became uh, self-centered. And so there came an alienation from God and from one another, and so the dance stopped. And instead, there was discord and disunity, and divorce, and so on. And you find Adam blaming Eve when he should have been taking a responsibility. And that's what we see, you know, taking place throughout history, isn't it? Instead of men and women complementing one another as co-equals, they try to dominate one another, with men historically dominating women, and occasionally women dominating men. But it's led to women being treated so often like they don't count or like they don't have a voice. Or worse still, being treated as sex objects and being subjected to uh, all kinds of abuse. And tragically, some of you here have experienced that. And I know that because I've heard you know, some of your stories. That's been your experience uh, growing up in this culture. And for some of you, it's been your experience in church as well. 
um, which you know, is an absolute travesty. And as a man, I can only say I am deeply, deeply sorry if that has been your experience. And if I, in any way, have contributed to creating a culture like that, um, please forgive me. Right? I think I, I want to be absolutely clear. Right? It is not good. It is not good. It grieves God. And it should grieve us as well. It should grieve us because God created men and women together in a complete equality in his likeness that we might be one. And of course, that goes for all mankind, doesn't it? Because, because of our rebellion at the fall, it's affected every aspect of our humanity, every layer of society. It's not just between the sexes. You know, it's between siblings. It's between generations, between classes, between races and nations. And that is what Jesus came to redeem. In Ephesians 2, Paul says Jesus died on the cross to bring reconciliation between us and God and between one another. In verse 14 of Ephesians 2, it says, For he himself, Jesus, he is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, in his own body on the cross. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. And he's talking there about the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. But this applies to every group. Because as Paul says in Galatians uh, 3.28, he says, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, and nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now please note, he's not saying that there are no differences between those groups, that there's no distinctions. There are. What he's saying is there's no division anymore. There's no barriers because we're all one in Christ. We're all part of this new humanity now, together. Jesus gave his life, not just so that we could be forgiven and redeemed, but that we might be one. It's so that he might have this beautiful bride who will rejoin him in the dance, and so that our lives might once again revolve around God and around one another. And that is the effect that the gospel should have when we give ourselves to Jesus. You see, it should totally transform the way that we relate to one another. And it doesn't happen right away, right? It's like learning to dance. But if we're joined to Christ, if we're one with him, then as we saw recently from Philippians 2, we should have the same attitude as him. The same attitude as Jesus, who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or held on to, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, he humbled himself. He came to serve us by dying in our place on the cross. And so for us then, having that same attitude means instead of living for ourselves, we die to self. It means we change from being self-centered to being God-centered and other-centered. It means we reflect God's likeness through mutual self-giving love. It means like Jesus, we have the attitude of a servant. And that should characterize all of our relationships but particularly in marriage 
and in the church. Okay? So what do we do with this? What do we do with all this as we come uh, to a close here? I really felt that the Holy Spirit wants to both challenge us and lead us. I believe He wants to challenge us about our attitudes that might hinder our oneness. Now, that might be in your marriage. It might be in the way that you treat your spouse, the way you speak to your spouse, or maybe speak about your spouse. It might be your attitude towards the other sex or towards other believers. Is there someone that you're out of step with? Are there toes that you're treading on? Is there anything you need to repent of or someone you need to ask forgiveness of? Right, let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to show us. Right? If you will ask him, he will show you if there's anything like that that we need to change um, or repent of. Right? The Holy Spirit will show you if you'll ask him. But he also wants to lead us because the Holy Spirit is like the partner who takes the initiative. Right? He takes the lead with us, and he's calling us today to join him in the dance by being in step with him. Right? That's what Paul writes to um, the Galatians. In Galatians 5, he says, if we live by the Spirit, then let's also keep in step with the Spirit, which means to be in step with him in the way we treat one another, in loving one another, forgiving one another, serving one another, encouraging one another, doing all that we can to promote our oneness and to keep our unity. Amen? Now, if that's true, if you are in agreement with me about this, right? if you are wanting to keep in step with the Spirit, then I want to ask you to stand with me right now. Actually, I'm going to ask the band to come back up. Okay, at some point the band will join us. Listen, listen, Jesus prayed for this. This is exactly what Jesus prayed for. Right? John 17, verse 22, he prayed to the Father, I've given them, he's given us the glory. He says that you gave me, why? So that they might be one that they might be one as we are one, he says. I in them, you in me, he says, so that they might be brought to complete unity and then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is what he prayed for. What is God calling you to do to promote this oneness? Are there steps you can take this week, positive steps you can take this week to do that? Because Jesus said it's so the world will come to believe. So they'll join us in the dance. You see, because they'll see something so beautiful in our oneness, in our marriages, in our relationships with men and women flourishing together. Brothers and sisters, races and nations, all loving one another. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful bride. That's what we see coming down out of heaven in Revelation 21. But you know what? It's who we are right now. It's who we are. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us, shall we?